Hello, friends. This episode of the Paw and Order podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects people to animals through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalstone.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAWS10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals goes back to wildlife conservation. This episode is also brought to you by Elemento, an online market filled with Canadian organic and natural goods. Choose from hundreds of sustainable and plant-based products at Elemento.com and have them delivered straight to your door. Shopping for delicious, nutritious, and organic plant-based foods has never been easier. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode, number 64 of Pawn Order. I'm Peter Sankoff, co-host for today, and along with me here, now, off the island and in Toronto, it's Camille Lapchuk. How are you, Camille? Hey, hey, Peter, I'm doing well. I, I got back to Toronto um, just now, really. I, I got in yesterday, the day before we were recording this. So I am off of the um, COVID-free PEI, unfortunately. <laughs> you spoiled my joke. back into the frying pan. Yes, I was, you just, you preempted my joke. I was about to say, thank God you left the confines of the Atlantic bubble and got back to good old safe Toronto. <laughs> I know, my timing is perfect. Today we posted the highest ever case count for COVID. So yeah, it's going to be a great fall. I'm shocked that we're not already back in lockdown. I don't know about you. Wow, fantastic. The news just just keeps getting better and better, Camille. Uh, how does it feel to be back in the big smoke? Well, you know, I'm you know relatively happy about it. I'm definitely wearing my mask always on the streets and I even went into our office today for a little bit because I needed to get some stuff and see what it was like and you know there was almost nobody there so it felt pretty safe but um you know it's 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 nice to be back in the epicenter of vegan food I will definitely say that I've already been out and found these new products that came out in the two months I was gone so that's pretty cool wow yeah keeping it all in perspective that's good to know Delightful. Well, yeah. uh, I would say we're glad to have you back, but you're, you've just gotten a little bit closer to me. But practically speaking, it makes no difference. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're all, you know, still doing remote stuff anyway. I'm not going to see any colleagues in Toronto now that I'm back. So, it's, you know, what's the difference, I guess? But. Zoom, 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 Camille. That is our life today. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Well, Peter, I do wish I could see you in person to congratulate you on something kind of exciting. I'm feeling... Uh, it's not just the... 
It's I, not just the award-winning Camille Lavchuk anymore. We've got uh, an award-winning Peter Sankoff to join that list. I'm feeling I'm feeling different today, Camille. It's almost like I have more influence than I did yesterday. It's almost like you were named one of the top 25 most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Well, don't believe it, Camille. It's a scam. I demand a recount. <laughs> You're not supposed to ask for a recount when you win. Uh, yeah. Well, I am uh, very honored and I, I want to thank, I, I'm pretty sure I have some inside details, Camille. I think it was the support from Pawn Order listeners that pushed me over the top. I'm very honored in all seriousness. It was, uh, I don't place too much talk into these sorts of things, but um, given the kind of year it's been for me and uh, the, the the stuff that's just been going on, it was a really, it was a nice little honor to have this happen. And I appreciate the support from so many of our listeners that made it possible. Well, it's well-deserved and I hope you get as many congratulations as you uh, deserve because it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to be recognized by your peers in that way. I mean, Camille, I don't take it seriously and I don't want you to think otherwise when you see my top 25 most influential lawyer t-shirt. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want you to think anything of it, right? Just that's, that's my t-shirt. It, it happened to get made somehow and now I wear it around every day. So don't, don't think I'm getting a swollen head or anything. Well, and here I thought that all you wanted was a Pod and Order t-shirt, which don't you now have. Don't get me have, started. Don't guess... get me started. That was a hot topic at our, our live show. And speaking of our live show, wasn't that just absolutely delightful? Oh, I had such a good time both recording that episode with the three of us, you and me and Jessica Scott Reed, our other co-host, for the first time all together. But also the conference itself was just a blast. Honestly, Peter, I'm so happy with how it went. We were all nervous about the online format, obviously, because it's just not the same as being in person. But the breadth of panelists, the amazing topics they covered, the diversity, uh, all the feedback that we got was great. If you haven't signed uh, or filled out the survey, if you were at the conference and haven't filled out the survey yet, check your email because we'd love to hear from you. And if you didn't make it to the conference, it's not too late, actually. So the sessions were all recorded and tickets are still available to watch those sessions. And the price has actually gone down. So you have a sale opportunity. Uh, tickets are now only $100 for general admission or $50 for a student. Fantastic. And I'll tell you, I thought it was a great conference. I really enjoyed I went to a lot of the panels. I still have a lot to catch up on. And I went to a lot of the panels. Um, I especially enjoyed the little networking sessions that were uh, um, hosted by our good friend Kimberly Carroll, by and large. And I thought they were great. And, and that's my only, uh, um, not a criticism really of the conference, but just what I've learned from Zoom, Camille, is that um, it's really handy to have breakout sessions that are almost a little more structured because I think what happens when you do breakout sessions like that is I, I just find any number over like six or seven participants and you start to lose focus and structure. It's really hard to have a conversation with that many people. And I think maybe next time it would be nice to have like these little planned breakouts almost where you could really just organize. Because I know we did one of those at the conference and had six or seven people and it was a blast. It was like a lot of fun. It was just a 20 minute breakout during one of the lunch breaks, I think it was. And I think that would be really a great way to sort to connect with people in an environment that would sort of be like the little side to sides that you have in a real conference. 
Yeah, it's kind of the best approximation that we've got via Zoom for those little, you know, coffee break chats around the cooler or wherever else. Uh, I, I really enjoyed those too, and I like the one that we had. So I am predicting, Peter, I don't know for sure, we'll see, but it's really tough to imagine at this point that we'll be able to have a several hundred person in-person conference by next fall. So you guys might see this offered again next year. And if so, we're going to try to make it just as exciting, as engaging as, as possible for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're doing the best we can with what we got. And speaking of the best we can, Camille, something very exciting happened to me um, recently that I feel I should share with you and our listeners since they're here. Well, let's hear it. Camille, I realized a long, long time dream today, and you know this. I don't know if our listeners will know this, but this morning, Camille, you know what I did? I, I... worked out for the first time in my new home gymnasium and i am i am i can't i can't even describe how excited i am um i have i have sort of dreamed about having a home gym for a long long time and and it took covid camille to finally make it a reality as crazy as that is Wow, congratulations. That's pretty cool. And I'm a little bit envious. I've got definitely some equipment at home, so I'm you know, not doing too bad. But, oh, God, Peter, I, I was walking down Bloor Street today in Toronto and walked by a couple of gyms that were people, people were in them and working out. And I was just like, oh, my God, this seems like a terrible idea. Like, I get the need to do that. And not everyone has enough space for a gym. But oh, I'm glad you can stay home. I hear you. And I, did I send you some of the pictures, Camille? Of you getting buff? Or no, of, like of, of the actual gym. I think this no. is going to be uh, quite a moment. This is live television at its best, at live podcasting at its best. <laughs> I am literally texting you a couple of pictures right now. So just so you can like gaze on what is going on in my basement right now. Damn, there's a squat rack. Oh boy. Bench press setup. Oh We've yeah. Got a treadmill in there. Oh, yeah. We've got a weight section. And I have it's another. Good. I have another room, Camille, with a lateral for machine because I need something for my lats. The only the only problem, Camille, I just have one problem that I'm trying hard to overcome. It's just that like as a vegan, I I'm really struggling to get my protein, Camille. I don't know. Like I, I, I'm worried. Like, how am I going to gain any muscles, Camille? Because without protein and calcium, I could snap at any moment, Camille. It's it's a realistic possibility. It's very dangerous. Actually, this reminds me of something that Taylor, our friend Taylor Zavitz posted on Instagram. And hi, Taylor, if you're listening. It's a, it's a joke. It's like a day in the life of a vegan. 9 a.m., wake up. Anemia blackout when trying to get to bed. 10 to noon, look for protein. 12 p.m., cry over pictures of bacon on the internet. I'm telling you. Uh, 1 to 4, anemia nap. Anyway, 6 p.m., die from lack of protein. Yeah, I think we're all doing just fine. That's what it was. I'm just down there, and I'm trying to work out, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I don't have any oomph. No, it was was pretty awesome. So it was a lot of fun. And I'm really, uh, yeah, you'll have to, one of these days, Camille, one of these days you'll stay over as a guest, guest and you can work out... uh, um, in the in the Sankoff gym, I'm calling it. So, you know, we can dream, right? <laughs> These things are going to happen one day. One day. We've got to have something to look forward to. 
Well, I tell you, right. it has been busy. And I know, Camille, that that is not all there is. It's like the animal justice treadmill, just that treadmill. You like that segue? <laughs> the animal justice treadmill just never stops. It's just work, work, work. What do you got going on there in Toronto right now? Well, a million things, like a million different campaigns, which is great. Always super happy to be giving people opportunities to get engaged. And we're going to talk about a couple of them in the news section, so I'll save them for that. But Peter, as you know, one really exciting thing that we're doing right now is we're hiring another lawyer to join the team. Now, unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, applications will have closed. So hopefully any of you who are listening to this already found the information through our mailing list or social media or a job site. But it's going to be cool. We're expanding again, and I'm super happy about it. It's very exciting, and I know already that the competition is tough. I mean, I'm like one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. I couldn't even get shortlisted for this position. It was crazy. Like, I got rejected <laughs> right away. I don't know. I, I'm not Yeah, sure. it wasn't so much your abilities. It was more like, well, the other team members get along yeah, with him. I think, I think, I, you know, I might have seen that like on the resume, it said something like mentions gallivanting too much. I don't know. It was just, it was a throwaway <laughs> thing at the office, but that was it. I was out. So I hope all of you listeners out there who dream of working um, in animal law, it's, a, it's just an exceptional opportunity um, to get on the team. I promise to poke fun at you at least once or twice during your tenure. And uh, it's a great opportunity. So by all means, get your application in. Totally. All right. Well, Peter, we have a really nice new five-star review from oh, a listener. Wow. And I'm going to read it because I'm Ooh. so happy and honored from Christopher. Uh, Christopher from MA. I guess that's Massachusetts. Christopher says, this is riveting, fascinating, and beautiful. I discovered this brilliant jewel of a show in June, and I'm absolutely astounded by the intelligent insight and compassion that pulses through every episode. I was almost completely unaware of animal rights until last year when I was learning about harp seals in preparation for a trip to Quebec this past winter, where I was blessed to meet the newborns and their mothers. That is so cool, and I'd love to hear mm -hmm. more about how you did that, Christopher. Uh, I had been completely unaware of the horrific industrial slaughters of these precious creatures. Of all the heroes fighting to end the killing, I found Camille's account to be the most powerful. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm regularly, or I am a regular meat eater, but even though this show passionately promotes veganism, Camille, Jessica, and Peter never shame or denigrate those of us who aren't. Instead, they emphasize great love, kindness, and value for all life without judging. This is truly a must-listen for every person who cherishes compassion and aspires to make our world a more humane place. I just think that's so nice. Thank that you so is, much, Christopher, for the kind fantastic. words. That is fantastic. And although there is no judging, Christopher, that is correct. You may be aware of the fact that as a regular mediator, you are eligible for my offer of a few shows ago to send you a copy of Jonathan Safran Foer's book free of charge and see if that has any impact on you whatsoever. That's really all I wanted to uh, do when I made the offer. So Christopher, as someone who gives us such a nice review, you are very eligible for that offer. If you send in a note to uh, us here at info at animaljustice.ca. Is that right, Camille? Yeah, that's right. I, I hope Christopher takes us up on it. Fantastic. Now, I can also remind you that in addition to leaving us five-star reviews, and frankly... You know how much I like reading reviews. Um, you can also support us on Patreon for as little uh, as $1 a month. And it is really important to keep us keeping on with this show. And we offer regular prizes for our patrons and, of course, our love. So thank you so much to our new patron, Krista D. And I also want to thank Kristen Marsh. 
Krista and Kristen. Uh, Kristen just increased her pledge from $5 to $10 per month. Thank you so much, Kristen. That really uh, keeps us going. Now, All right, Camille, Peter, we've, uh, before we've we get into news. the news, just before we get into the news, I just wanted to highlight, I'm very excited. We, we forgot to mention our, our topic, our special topic of the show before we get into the news is uh, we're, I, I did an interview with someone who was at our conference, Camille, and that was uh, Matthew Liebman. And I'm very excited about this interview. It talks about a very recent uh, case that was in the news in Oregon, the case of uh, Justice the Horse. And Matthew has a, a wonderful background as the uh, director of litigation for the Animal Legal Defense Fund for many years and now is working, as you will hear, at the University of San Francisco Law School doing some exciting stuff for animals. That's very cool. And I have not yet heard this interview, so I really look forward to it as well. And Matthew gave a great talk at the conference if you want to check it out and sign up and and watch his session. Absolutely. Now, the news, as you pointed out, Camille, is very busy. You want to lead us off? All right, let's start in Manitoba. We're, we're starting with a story about High Life Foods, which is a meat production company, i.e. slaughterhouse. When you hear the word meat production or food processing, that means slaughterhouse. Mm. Um, but we're, we're focusing today on a story from um, Factory Farm Collective about High Life Foods being fined $75,000 for illegally causing pain and distress to animals. Um, so apparently on August 4th, the CFIA laid charges against High Life. And the CFIA put a notice out about this that says that on September 18th, 2018, it's so interesting, it was so long ago, mm. High Life Foods handled hogs and used equipment in a manner that caused the animals avoidable distress or pain, thereby committing offenses under the Meat Inspection Act. So this is basically improper slaughter. And the only other detail they provide is that two charges allege that High Life used equipment for rendering hogs unconscious in a manner that subjected them to avoidable dis- distress or pain. So it's it's obviously a botched slaughter, but we don't know any of the details, Peter. And I think you've got some comments on that. I'm just like, I find, you know, this is one of those stories that you can look at in many different ways, good news slash bad news, however you want to, you know, stress it. But like at the end of the day, the, the issue here is like you can say, OK, well, they were monitoring the Meat Inspection Act. Good. And they found some violations. Also good. What troubles me about it is like I decided to read the news release, Camille, as you did. And this is a news release put out by CFIA that talks about three charges and literally Camille gives us no facts whatsoever. None. None. There's just like, essentially, they tell us, well, there was a breach and there were charges. Fantastic. I'm like, they talk about that CFIA, just read this email. CFIA is responsible for the administration and enforcement of federal legislation, including the Meat Inspection Act. Good. We're dedicated to safeguarding food, animal, and plant health. Good. Which enhances the health and well-being of Canada's people, environments, and the economy. Questionable, but we'll let that one go. Um, Because like, I want to know what it is. So I decided, Camille, to do something I haven't done in a long time. I called them. They have C- CFIA media inquiries. I said, well, here I am. I'm from Paw and Order, and I'd like to know the facts <laughs> of this case. And you know what they told me, Camille? They told me what? they couldn't tell me what the facts were. That's what they told media oh. inquiry. Like, they oh. want to trumpet this as if CFIA is doing great work, and here we are cracking down against charges. They said, if you want the facts of the case, you've got to do an access to information request, which will take how long, Camille? 
can we measure it? Oh, by, I mean, it could be years. I yeah. just I just completed one that took four years. By so, the glacier yeah. cycle, right? It's like the movement of a glacier. It's just absolutely infuriating because that would never happen with a criminal charge. The facts are agreed in court. Like they have to put down certain facts. There's essentially when they plead guilty to a crime, the crown and the, pro, the prosecutor and the defendant agree on an agreed statement of facts that inform the court of what happened so that the court can accept the plea. These are not confidential and secret information. And and my feeling is if CFIA wants us to feel comfortable that with the way things are going in the meat inspection area, which I am not, they would begin by telling me what the hell High Life Foods actually did. What were the charges? Was this, a, was this something that was sanctioned? Was this an ongoing procedure? Was this a rogue employee you like that Camille I got in the rogue like the rogue employee Ooh. like what was it and I just find that this story is so utterly unsatisfying and frankly says a lot about the way we do these things the details of what actually happened to these animals being slaughtered were so unimportant that they weren't even in the story it's amazing and you know just just to emphasize for listeners this is a very rare event uh, this kind of thing does not happen all the time. And the fact that when it finally does and the CFA finally takes welcome enforcement action against the slaughterhouse, we're not even able to get at the details of this without being told to go through some cumbersome, uh, cumbersome access to information process is just ridiculous. I have another question about this, Peter, which is the length of time that passed between when the incidents allegedly occurred, which was September 2018, and when they actually laid charges, which was August 4th, 2020. So what happened in those 23 months before they laid charges? Why did it take so long? Why did they know about this issue in the first place? Was it because somebody inspected them? Was it because an employee took a video? Was there a whistleblower situation? Like, I'm just very curious to know what led to this. It's actually and, July you know, 22nd. The reasons for that. Yes, I, I, I do hear you. It's July 22nd. I was just checking because I was like, there's no way anybody would plead guilty in that short a time. Like it's got to oh, be, okay. there's got to have been notification to the company in advance. Like I can tell you, Camille, no one pleads guilty in three weeks. Like the charges were laid and the guilty plea is three weeks later. Like that's freaking impossible. Like I, I just know. I'm still not seeing your July 22nd thing. In the here, August, but, but either way, in the it's August a very... 4th um, notification, it talks about the date, and it says August huh. 4th is the date the release came out. But the uh, oh, it actually I see. says yeah, on okay. July 22nd because I was looking, and those dates make no sense. That's like a two-week time period. You know how long it takes to get disclosure, Camille. No one pleads guilty without disclosure. So, like, my guess is the only way this makes possible sense is if the company had notice already. There's no way that this was just done in that short a period of time. They must have known this was coming. Well, yeah. And then, you know, also that's suggested by the fact that there was such a delay between the incident and when they laid charges, like presumably they were trying to work something out. Maybe, maybe they considered like a lighter enforcement action in that time and it didn't work. I don't know, but I would like to know. And I would like for the CFIA just to tell us. Well, the good news is, Camille, can I read this directly? Because I know you're going to like this. This makes me feel a lot better given what we've just described. Are you ready? This is literally read out of the CFIA notice. The CFIA issues notification of charges laid to inform the public when charges have been laid by the PPSC based on information provided. Notice get ready, Camille, is part of our commitment to openness and transparency and ongoing efforts to increase awareness of our role in encouraging compliance. Like for oh fuck's sake, seriously, it's such complete bullshit. It's just a total whitewash. Hog shit, Peter. It is. It's, it's, 
Camille, I'm getting angry, goddammit. <laughs> it doesn't happen lightly, and it doesn't happen often, but I'm getting angry. And I'm getting angry because it's this kind of stupidity that is just the classic annoyance about what these things are. And it's just like, everything's okay. Nothing to see here. Literally, nothing. You won't show me anything. How am I supposed to feel that you're being open and transparent if you won't tell me anything about the investigation? And I understand to a certain extent in this first notice because this first notice is just about laying the charges. I do understand that they've got to be circumspect. It's not proven yet, right? I get that. But then it's proven. They pleaded guilty and you still won't tell me anything. Like, give me a break. It's just deeply upsetting that the agency that's responsible for administering these things feels it's also part of their mandate to keep them as bare bones as possible and just say, well, there's been some charges. We don't need to know what happened to these hogs because after all, Camille, they're just hogs and they're going off to slaughter. And I just find that a deeply troubling way of doing business. And frankly, it's just the way they do business and bothers me a great deal. Yeah, well, I second all of that. And also, if you want to learn more about the story, Factory Farm Collective wrote a really interesting piece about it and like discussing the charges a little bit, but also going in depth on who High Life Foods is. Um, they're a foreign-owned corporation. There's lots of information in there about the Canadian farming industry with respect to pigs in particular. So check that out, too, if you want to kind of keep an eye on what's going on here. But it's, it's just it's very troubling stuff. Yeah, I'll say. And really just, you know, again, sort of indicative. I feel like to a certain point, Camille, we're like broken records on this show because a lot of the problems that that are, you know, apparent in the area of animal law and animal treatment just appear again and again and again in the same way. And this lack of transparency and this difficulty in getting information about this. And frankly, like, again, I want to know, like, was like the thing that I want to know most, and I want to know a lot of things. I mean, in addition to like what actually happened, like I I don't know, like what was the nature of this and how did it affect three pigs? Like, how, I, I'm curious, like, what was it? Was it three stunning procedures that was done wrong? Was there something wrong with the equipment? And, and I want to know, like, is this an employee issue or is this a corporate issue? Like, what is it? Was one employee, like, I just, how am I supposed to know anything and feel comfortable about what High Life, one of the biggest, you know, um, um, corporations dealing with hogs in the country is doing when I literally have no idea what the facts of the actual charge are. I just know that there was a charge and that's supposed to make everything better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and rant, but that was a, that was a good one. I'm angry. Very frustrating. What can I tell you? I'm angry. All right. Well, well, let's keep, let's keep the focus on farming for the next couple stories. (laughs) Just to let's talk about something lighter going. Yeah, exactly. Power through. All right. Well, I mentioned in the intro that we've got a couple of opportunities for people to get engaged on some farming issues right now. And those are a gig issues. Uh, So Ontario has opened consultations on its new egg gag law. So as you'll recall, Bill 156 passed in the spring, but the government is still drafting regulations. So most of that law is not yet in effect because the regulations will really define the details. Now, they've put forward a consultation process or sorry, a consultation paper that lays out their thinking on this. And I'm not going to get into too many details, but what I can tell you is it's still highly unconstitutional. They want to define who journalists are and have some sort of exemption for undercover investigations if you're a journalist, but only in very particular circumstances. Um, They still want to outlaw activist investigations, which of course would be um, terrible for transparency again in the farming industry. 
So we are going to link in the show notes to an advocacy page put up by Animal Justice. And if you want to have your say, you can use that page to send in a message to the consultation process. But I will just say it's always better if you want to get involved in this to send an email yourself. So instead of using our page with a form letter, if you can send a personal email to the email address listed there, then you'll have more of an impact because they like to disregard form letters if they can. They're like, oh, you know, we got 3,000 emails, but they were all form letters, so that only counts as one email, which is ridiculous. But all that to say, to make the biggest impact, send in something personal. I know, Camille, that like, you know, defining journalists is always a great idea. That's always going to solve all the problems in a nutshell by essentially limiting the people who can do this to a small group of ever, you know, (laughs) becoming more and more of an endangered species as time goes on. But by all means, let's protect their ability to express things while keeping everybody else in the dark. Yeah, interestingly, the charter doesn't say that only journalists have freedom of expression. The charter Uh -uh. says that we all do. It sure does. See you in court, Doug Ford. But the good news, Camille, the good news, really, the good news is this is just an Ontario problem, right? Nothing, nothing else to see here. There's another consultation in Manitoba. So if you're listening from Manitoba, you've got an opportunity to take part there. So the stage that Manitoba is at right now with the egg gig is that the province is looking at passing this like sort of rural crime prevention legislation. And there's a few things in there that seem relatively benign or stuff that animal justice is not concerned about, like preventing metal theft and ATVs on farmland. But they are also considering and asking for input on restricting rights to protest near trucks transporting animals to slaughter. And again, making these like Orwellian style animal protection zones on farms and slaughterhouses that people could not go in to expose animal abuse. So it's pretty sketchy on the details still. They're kind of consulting broadly. So it's a really good opportunity for anyone living in Manitoba to have your say. And again, we'll link to that page through the show notes so you can take action and let them know that you oppose egg egg and there needs to be regulation of farming, not more secrecy. Here, here. Now, what I enjoy, Camille, is that these governments never run out of creative ways to hide their willingness to restrict what's going on on farms. Like there's just so many fun ways to do it. It's funny because of course the Alberta law is very different from the Ontario law. And frankly, Camille, you know, I'm worried. I'm, I'm as worried as anybody with good reason about metal theft. So frankly, you put that, <laughs> you put that in a bill, I'll agree to anything, right? So it is interesting how creative um, they can get. And it's funny because I was talking with Matt Liebman and this came up. It's unfortunately not in our interview. This was in our, you know, general gab fest before and after the interview. But we were talking about the way in which, and he was like, yeah, there's like, there's many different models here. And it's like, there's just lots, you know, there's the when there's the we'll make it really narrow and just food industries or we'll make it really broad so it applies across the board and it's content neutral like there's just you know to me all these different ways are all flawed but they're flawed for different reasons and it's the 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 creativity never ceases to amaze me yeah yeah the egg industry is always thinking of new ways to try to hide their operations from the public and target people who oppose them and Um, It keeps us on our toes, so there's always lots of work to do. (laughs) Listen, Camille, like you and I both know, if if you've got $80 million to spend on marketing and, you know, creative research, like that money is not, it's not going to spend itself, right? You got to come up with some consultations (laughs) and some ideas, right? 
oh boy, I wish I had a share. Yeah, of that these guys have mind. pretty much unlimited money for lobbying and for you know coming up with creative ways to conceal the cruelty. So you know, it's it's a back and forth. We. Uh, I shouldn't say we yet, but in the United States, they strike down some AK laws, and Iowa, for instance, passes brand new ones that are completely different, and they have to relitigate them. So, uh, I think the the benefit still throughout this process is that it's bringing awareness to this farming issue. It's bring, it's reminding people that the industry is trying to hide something, and we know based on pretty solid research that when people learn about the existence of things like AK laws, their support for agriculture drops. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that is that is an important part of the process. Uh, the litigation is important, but I think it's only part of what's going on surrounding these issues. And I think, you know, uh, keeping things hidden and trying to justify it on the basis of safety and security is only going to go so far. There are people who are really concerned, and I think rightfully so, um, about what's actually happening, and, and, and we need to know about it. And uh, cutting off information is like one of the most devious and troublesome ways in which this takes place. And and, and again, it's it's so upsetting the way in which uh, particular incidents were used as leverage to sort of use these things and really turn them into to ways in which to continue to guarantee secrecy, which is really, really a troubling aspect of what's going on right now. Animal Stone is a Toronto-based, family-owned, women-run business specializing in handmade, solid sterling silver and solid 14-karat gold animal charms. Animal Stone was founded on the principle that humans, animals, and nature must exist harmoniously together to conserve our shared place on planet Earth. Animal Stone believes the joy that animals bring to our lives is an essential component to our ecological systems, so that together we must celebrate and respect their majesty. With the help of in-house designer and goldsmith Delane Cooper, over 40 3D animals have been brought to life, complete with a birth story, name, and personality reflective of the animal as it is in the wild. Animal Stone is a team of animal lovers and eco-warriors who celebrate the beauty of the natural world while encapsulating this love for wildlife within the miniature bodies that are their Animal Stone charms. Animal Stone's mantra is connecting animals to people, and they have partnered nine of their animal charms up with local and global wildlife organizations to make a difference through rescue, conservation, education, habitat protection, and research. Check out AnimalStone.com to learn more and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order today. Looking for all the basics for your pantry, but you want Canadian organic and natural brands that believe in animal compassion and sustainable eating? Well, Elemento is the Canadian-owned online food market you've been looking for. It carries Canadian brands such as Everland, New World, and their brand new Bliss Balls, which I have tried, and I can tell you, they are delicious. Elemento believes that everyone deserves a kitchen packed with nutrient-rich, organic, and plant-based foods. Get any of their hundreds of products delivered to your door at elemento.com. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O.com. Or find endless numbers about recipes and sustainability tips on social media at at Elemento Market. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. And I'm going to suggest you get their chocolate cashews. Again, I had some of those. They were delicious. All right. Well, we can tell you right now, we've already adverted to it, but I am uh, absolutely delighted. Um, Matthew Liebman is not only um, a fantastic lawyer and a, fast, a fantastic devoted um, um, activist towards, towards making the world a better place for animals, and, and now my, my colleague in academia, that's, you know, 
he, he decided to move into academia, but he's also a very old friend of mine. I've known Matthew since this is, this is a running theme, Camille. Since he was a law student, <laughs> this has become You're a, so old, Peter. Become, You're so old. This has become a running theme. It came up at the conference. I was on a panel with uh, Danielle Duffield, who's been in practice for like ten years. But like, I met her when she was a law student at the University of Otago, and she invited me to come speak uh, when I was living in New Zealand. Just like. I knew Camille when she was a baby law sprout and I know Matthew Liebman when he's a baby law sprout. Now all these people are like running the animal law movement, which is just fantastic. So uh, Matthew and I go way back and it's, it's really a pleasure and really an honor to speak with him both about his academic mission and his, his change in career and also, most importantly, about the case of uh, justice versus virtue, which is really some really interesting, I think, landmark litigation going on in the Oregon Court of Appeals. All right, I am very pleased to be here with uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Matthew Liebman, who is the chair currently is the chair for the uh, Justice for Animals uh, program and an associate professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. And it is my pleasure, Matthew, to welcome you to Paw and Order. It is truly my pleasure to be here, Peter. Now, Matthew, um, Matthew knows, but none of you do, that this is, is, is only technically Matthew's first appearance. It's his first appearance on the airwaves of Paw and Order. Um, but Matthew um, did a wonderful interview uh, with me a couple of years ago in which uh, I was really excited to have him on talking about something very similar to what he's going to talk about today. And apparently some staffer at the Paw and Order home office just completely botched the recording. <laughs> And as a result, Matthew didn't appear. I thought that was your fault. I thought you were the staffer. <laughs> okay, the staffer was me. I completely ah. botched I completely botched the recording and I have felt terrible ever since and it has been my mission to get Matthew from his busy schedule and get him back on pawn order. So I am recording, I am watching, it's recording correctly, Matthew, and I'm very excited to to welcome you, you know, officially to pawn order, which is great. Yeah, and you know what? It worked out because we have more to talk about about the case that we uh, a lot has happened in the last couple of years. So, so we can. That's correct. Refresh and it. There is there is much more to talk about, and um, the first thing I think we have to talk about, Matthew, is you know. I barely recognized you when I saw you this time. I remember the last time that I saw you, you, you know, you had a beard that was something to behold. It was really something. And now you're all clean shaven. So first and foremost of importance, what happened to the beard, Matthew? The beard comes and goes. It is, uh, you know, I, I took a sabbatical last year and I let, I let the beard flow and, um, it's as glorious as ever when it when it grows out, but um, I've got you know the hair has grown out and the I hair figure, is big, yeah, yeah. And as you know, I've I've recently joined academia to so to have long hair and a big bushy beard. I think yeah. is not not the look I'm going for just yet. All right, I'll keep that in mind. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew, just in case for those of you you know because you're listening to this on radio, just think that Matthew is my follicle opposite. That's what he is. He's got like. 
incredible, very, very bushy, long hair. So it's fantastic. I'm very envious. Uh, Matthew and I go quite a way back. We just uh, figured out that it's been, we first met in 2008. We hit it off, uh, I believe, over our passion for animal issues and our, our love of voodoo donuts. I think that was what brought us together. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And and voodoo donuts have come a long way from from the olden days. They used to be uh not as good as they are now, but uh, the vegan donut technology is is amazing. It's unbelievable. And if I can ever entice you for some academic mission to come up to Edmonton, I can tell you that we have not one, but we have two vegan donut stores in Edmonton called Donut Party, and they are they are really top notch. That's all I'm going to say. I'm just going to say they're not a sponsor of the show, so that's all I can say. But the, the top notch, Matthew. Um, um, I'm going to talk to you. I want to talk to you about a couple of things. I know Matthew. Matthew's had a very long storied career as uh, first a legal counsel um, with the Animal Legal Defense Fund in the U.S. and eventually for quite some time was director of litigation. And I want to uh, ask him about uh, one of his most famous cases. But I want to start, Matthew, um, just by talking. You just mentioned you've made the transition into academia. Can you tell me a little bit about the program uh, you, are, you are you know, setting up at the University of San Francisco? School of Law and, and what you're trying to accomplish there. Sure. So um, this the program is the Justice for Animals program. Uh, it's brand new. Just started uh, in in the fall semester of 2020, um, and it was made possible by a very generous donation uh, from an anonymous donor who endowed the the program and the position that I now have. Um, and the University of San Francisco. Um, decided to announce the program and did a nationwide search for a candidate. Um, and I, I wasn't looking to leave litigation or the Animal Legal Defense Fund, um, but the, the posting and announcement came across my inbox um, and really intrigued me. I thought um, that the, the vision of the university, their commitment to creating this program um, was genuine and sincere, and there was, there was real excitement about creating uh, a program centered on uh, not just uh, animal law in a dispassionate sense, but a justice for animals program in the heart of San Francisco, which of course is named after St. Francis. The University of San Francisco is a Jesuit university. Um, I'm not Catholic, but I, I thought that the, the vision and mission, the social justice mission of the university and of the law school uh, made it a perfect place um, to create a, a program. And so I decided um, to put in an application and um, they decided to, uh, to to hire me. So I'm really excited to make this transition. I've been litigating for um, 12 years and directing the litigation program at ALDF uh, for uh, about three years. And um, so it was a, a difficult decision to make. I, I love the team that I was working with at the Animal Legal Defense Fund, um, a team of about a, a dozen attorneys and uh, amazing support staff doing really uh, transformational animal protection litigation. Um, but I really just could not pass up this opportunity to accept a, a position as a professor uh, and the opportunity to uh, create a program in one of the most uh, progressive animal friendly jurisdictions in the country, if not the world. Well, needless to say, you know, as someone who is, you know, kind of working for an organization called Animal Justice, I'm a big, big fan of your, your 
your center's name. I mean, it's close to copyright infringement, but we're okay with it. You flipped it around. It's not animal justice. It's justice for animals. We're almost like symbiotic in a pod. Love it. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot because it's early days. I know you just started this semester, but do you have some thoughts about how you uh, are some of the things you want to do to achieve uh, the, the vision that you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it is early and we want to sort of um, uh, establish a presence, uh, figure out what's going to fit best with the, the, the culture of the law school, the culture of the university, um, and take it from there. So, um, but, but obviously there's a sense of um, looking to other schools that have had incredibly uh, productive efforts to, to integrate animal law into their curriculum, schools like Lewis and Clark and Harvard um, that have taken uh, what I think are important steps. So obviously we're thinking about clinics, we're thinking about expanding the curricular offerings, uh, doing workshops and symposia on topics that are um, of interest in the animal law community and to the USF community as well. Um, so it's, it's at this stage, um, uh, Early, we have one uh, course that I'm teaching right now, which is an introductory animal law course. In the spring, I'm going to be doing a seminar on animals and justice that's looking at both uh, the sort of substantive question of what justice towards animals looks like, but also incorporating questions of how animal justice or justice for animals uh, integrates with human social justice causes. So looking at the overlap um, in terms of exploitation of animals and exploitation of, of humans. So I'm really excited about that seminar. Um, and then sort of getting a sense of what the student body is interested in, in, in learning. I think for this to be a successful program, it's going to need to, um, to start slow and be attentive and receptive to the currents that are, that are being discussed at the school itself. Yeah, I think it's not surprising that you would bring up those two very successful programs uh, at Lewis and Clark and, uh, and at Harvard. And we, we had Chris Green on the show because my microphone didn't break for Chris, apparently, but we had Chris talking about the program. And it just, it struck me when you said that, that they've taken two pretty different models, it seems to me, um, in terms of, uh, of terms of advancing, you know, animal issues. And, and, and I don't think there is one, a one size fits all model. So I'll, I'll definitely be interested to see, uh, what, what you guys create over in San Francisco, knowing you, I'm sure it's going to be something exciting. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And I, I, I agree they have different models. I think the components are, are, are quite similar, but you know, Harvard is trending towards um, the more academic, social science-y, um, research-based uh, approach, which I think has incredible value. Um, Lewis and Clark, uh, a bit more practical, um, uh, training those future lawyers who are going to be doing those cases. Um, and I think we'll have elements of, of both of those. I want USF to be um, a thought leader for creating those new ideas, but also for implementing them. The, the university is um, has as its priority changing the world. And so I don't want it to simply be uh, an institute for thinking about these ideas. Uh, I, I do want it to be that, to, to generate new ways of addressing the problems confronting animals, but also to take that next step in terms of implementation, to training students who have the interest and capacity to take those ideas out into the world and actually create uh, new systems, new precedent that will redound to the benefit of animals. 
So speaking of implementing uh, change through creative uh, litigation and things along those lines, um, we have talked about this case in the past. We talked about it on Pawn Order when it was first launched, but uh, there's no one better to talk about it with than the person who uh, really launched and brought the litigation forth on behalf of ALDF. And that is the case of Justice versus Virtue, which is a case about a horse um, who is effectively suing um, the, her, her, it's her, correct? Her, his. her, his, sorry, my apologies. His former, I was reading, neglecting her horse, but of course the, the her in this is the, the owner, um, his, his owner for, uh, damages incurred, um, during, a, uh, effectively a case of cruelty. Why don't you t- take us through the case, Matthew, and tell us what it's about. Sure. So this is a uh, lawsuit that the Animal Legal Defense Fund filed um, when I was the director of litigation um, to create precedent recognizing the ability of animals to be plaintiffs in lawsuits, to sue their abusers for uh, the damages that they endure um, as a result of animal cruelty. So we filed a lawsuit with Justice the Horse as the plaintiff um, against his former owner, a woman named Gwendolyn Vircher. Um, and Justice had been rescued from a field in Oregon uh, in uh, the, where he had been neglected essentially for the entire winter. He was left in a field um, to starve and freeze to death in essence. Um, when he was rescued, he was 300 pounds underweight. Um, he had a condition called rain rot uh, and he um, had genital frostbite. He, he had been left out in the cold for so long that his, um, uh, his genitals had become frostbitten. And he was, so he was suffering tremendously. Uh, his owner was criminally prosecuted um, and ended up paying a small amount of restitution, but that restitution award was not enough to actually cover the lifetime uh, of expenses that Justice will um, and his caretakers will incur as a result of that animal cruelty. And so we thought, you know, if human victims of cruelty have a right to sue their abusers for damages, for the damages they've endured, why shouldn't animals have that same procedural Right, uh, and so we filed a lawsuit using uh, a theory called negligence per se, um, which is the idea that uh, one can file a tort suit um, where there's been a breach of an obligation that's created by statute, where there are obligations to behave in a particular way created by a, a legislative enactment that can create the the duty of care that's applicable in a negligence tort case. This is a theory that Delcy Winders at Lewis and Clark um, came up with uh, a decade ago. And and, um, so I want to give credit where credit is due for coming up with this concept of actually giving some purchase to the animal cruelty laws. Um, Here, there there was an animal protection law in Oregon, but it wasn't, um, uh, it didn't effectively resolve the injuries that justice suffered. So we used it as a um, as a springboard to create a new cause, uh, a new claim on behalf of a non-human plaintiff. So I have numerous questions. I got to figure out how to frame them in order. Um, let's start with the obvious. Is this is this claim that you were filing? Because the obvious response, and again, uh, I think listeners of the show are familiar with some of the concerns around animal standing. Obviously, the difficulty of actually bringing a claim um, on behalf of an animal. Do you feel that the claim that you're bringing is it grounded really in the particularities of the Oregon statute that you're talking about, or is this uh, assuming 
you know, you're able to be successful? Is this more of a, 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 a far-reaching uh, type of argument? Well, there are elements of both. So the, the argument here is in some ways unique to Oregon law. There's a case in Oregon called State versus Nix that recognizes animals as the victims of animal cruelty offenses. Now that case didn't grant animal standing, but it did recognize that the reason we have animal protection laws is not to protect public morals or not to protect the, the property interest of their owners, but for the animals themselves. And so we rely on that precedent um, to argue that the animal cruelty laws by creating uh, are recognizing and protecting the interests of animals themselves and avoiding suffering have conferred rights upon animals. And because animals have rights under the anti-cruelty law, that makes them by definition legal persons because a legal person is simply an entity who, who has rights to whom others owe a duty of care. And because animals have rights under the anti-cruelty law, because their human owners have obligations that are legally enshrined to treat them in a particular way. And because those protections exist for the benefit of the animals themselves, who the Oregon legislature recognizes as sentient beings, that creates rights which create personhood. Um, whether that's exportable to other jurisdictions is a question of what those anti-cruelty laws look like. It's a question of, of how those jurisdictions deal with personhood. Um, so in some ways it is limited to um, the growth of an animal jurisprudence in Oregon, but I think conceptually one could make the argument that every state that has enacted protections for animals for their own benefit has conferred upon animals rights, and by virtue of having rights, animals are legal persons. I've, I've always, um, I, have, I have a couple of questions, but I just, um, I take it, um, it wouldn't have made sense, obviously, to bring the the suit on behalf of, say, the sanctuary, correct? Both because that wouldn't advance the issue, and I think you'd still have a problem with the nexus, I guess, between the uh, injury and the and the defendant. Is that right? That's right. Um, so you know, this was something that um, we sort of grappled with: was who's the proper plaintiff here? And and one idea is that well, it's the the organization that rescued the horse and is is caring for him. But that's not the true individual who suffered the injury that's at the heart of this case. And part of the negligence per se test, one of the prongs is, is the plaintiff a member of the class of persons for whose benefit the legislature enacted the law? Mm -hmm. And the legislature didn't enact the anti-cruelty law to protect sanctuaries or rescue groups, it enacted the anti-cruelty laws to protect animals. It's animals who are the persons uh, intended to benefit from the statute. So the animals are, are uh, the proper plaintiff rather than um, a third party who might be incidentally harmed by a defendant's violation of the cruelty law. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So tell me a little bit about the trial stage and how that went. The defendant uh, did retain counsel, uh, and counsel filed a motion to have the case dismissed. Um, I uh, went to, I'm, I'm based in California, I went up to Oregon to argue the motion to dismiss. Uh, we had a, um, a judge who took the case seriously, gave us the opportunity to, um, uh, to make our arguments on behalf of justice, um, had good questions, but ultimately ruled 
against us um, and did dismiss the case on the grounds that justice being a non-human lacked the legal status, lacked standing to be able to pursue the case. Uh, so we, we filed a, a notice of appeal, um, briefed it in full, and recently had oral argument in front of the Oregon Court of Appeal. Uh, and I, uh, even though I had left ALDF at that time to join the University of San Francisco, uh, I remain lead counsel on that case under contract and so um, uh, argued the case uh, on justice's behalf. And, and how do you think the appeal went? Because it was fairly recent, correct? It was within the last month or so? Uh, yes, it was, um, yeah, just earlier this month. And I think it went well. Uh, the Court of Appeal took it seriously. They had some technical questions about uh, the source of standing. Where does capacity derive from? Is it a constitutional concept? Is it a statutory concept? Is it a common law concept? Um, but they, they took the case seriously. They had questions for, for both sides. They seemed skeptical of arguments that the defendant was making that uh, rights had to be limited to humans because only humans are capable of language and rationality. And the court saw through that and made uh, the argument from species overlap, as it's called, the idea that there are humans who lack uh, these capacities, but nevertheless, we recognize their rights. So the court seemed to, to understand and uh, sit with the philosophical questions that this case was presenting. Um, I, they didn't show their hand, um, and I don't wouldn't pretend to be able to read the tea leaves, um, but I, I think we have uh, a, a decent shot coming out of oral argument, which uh, you as a litigator know is, is not always the case. Correct. And um, obviously, even if you win this case, I, I'm curious about the scope of the appellate court's decision and what it means for the ultimate case, because obviously if you win, this just reverses the decision on the motion to dismiss. Um, how far would that go, do you feel, in affirming the overarching theory that you're trying to advance? Because obviously nothing's been proven at the, at the trial court, but let's assume you can prove the damages, etc. Um, how far would this decision, do you think, go towards advancing the litigation as a whole? This stage of the litigation is is extremely important, um, not only for, for, for justice individually, but for uh, the entire concept of animals having legal standing. So, you know, this case was dismissed at the uh, threshold level on a lack of animals to, ha to be able to file cases. So to, if this court does reverse, um, they would be saying, yes, an animal can be a plaintiff, now go prove up your claim. Um, and that's the easy part, right? She's, we've got a, a guilty plea. We've got, uh, you know, unrefutable veterinary evidence. I, I don't think the problem is improving that she mistreated justice in a way that caused him financial injury. Uh, the, the threshold issue is really this fundamental philosophical question that I, I know all of us are, are uh, reaching towards, which is how do we get the legal system to recognize uh, animal personhood in a way that makes them cognizable legal subjects and a right, win here would would do that no I, I i caught that i was asking i was wondering whether there were any other fundamental aspects of the claim because i get it obviously the standing claim is the main claim and you need to have standing i was wondering whether any other parts of the theory are in some way potentially limitable on the basis that the plaintiff is an animal or something along those lines whether there are any other contested aspects to the claim once you get over the idea that the complaint that the uh, that the plaintiff is an animal is, that's it, correct? It's just that's the main issue? 
I think so, essentially. I mean, there are a few different aspects of the argument that animals can't be plaintiffs. In some, some ways, it has to do with um, their capacity. In some ways, it has to deal with whether or not they can have a representative. So there's a guardianship issue that might be, uh, that would probably come up on, on remand, um, but nothing that is insurmountable from our perspective. Okay, and how closely do you feel that this litigation um, relates to the litigation being run by the, the the Human Rights Project for you know some of the cases that they're running? Are there are the similarities strong, or are they are they different depending on the nature? Because it sounds like what you were just saying that a lot of the same issues were being raised at the Court of Appeal in terms of uh, uh, finding a plaintiff or having it accepted that an animal can be a plaintiff. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities or or also a lot of differences. I mean, the similarities are, of course, are uh, we're all after the same idea, as I just said, the idea of animals as as legal persons with the capacity to have uh, legal rights to be recognized as um, legal subjects. So in that regard, uh, I think the aim of the uh, Animal Legal Defense Fund in the Justice case and the Non-Human Rights Project in uh, the habeas cases are are quite similar. But I think uh, in terms of the theories that are being advanced, there are some significant differences. Um, The Non-Human Rights Project is relying on a sort of normative concept of personhood. That is, animals have these capacities as a matter of of science and therefore should be entitled to personhood and the rights that go along with it. I think the justice case is a a bit more narrow uh, in the sense that uh, it's not a normative argument for personhood, it's more of a descriptive one. uh, That a legal person, personhood is not something that's uh, awarded based on capacity, like scientifically provable capacities. It's something that either exists or doesn't exist depending on whether the individual at the center of the case has has rights. So we're not arguing that animals should be persons because they can pass the mirror test. Uh, we're arguing they should, that they already do have personhood because the legislature has conferred rights on them. Right. And in so, that sense, so it's a little bit more narrow. Yeah, there are limits and advantages. I understand what you're saying because it would still be significant and obviously you still have to get over the standing question. But in a even if you win this case, I guess one of the limitations of it is that it's dependent on always being able to show that the the animal has that right as a matter of the statute, correct? That's right. So it's sort of there's a there are positive rights that have been conferred to a class of animals by the legislature. So the scope of the rights that animals have are already determined, but in that sense, they're also confined. So all of the exemptions that apply to the anti-cruelty law um, would apply to the substantive rights that animals have. And, and you know, that is a, a benefit of the non-human rights project concept is that they are sort of arguing for a more fundamental right than what the legislature has conferred, um, but that also in some ways makes it more difficult for judges yeah. to, to agree with it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's sort it's almost uh it's there's a lot of aspects to it, one of them being tactical. I've always I've always been um, I've always been skeptical of the non human rights project, not necessarily because I disagree with their theory, although I have some issues with some parts of their theory, but but mainly because, as I said this year during the Animal Law Conference, I know enough about judges to know that the bigger the leap you want to take, the harder it is to get them to take that leap. Um, whereas I think what you're I think what you're saying is that the justice case obviously has a narrower, it's a narrower gap to jump over. That sound right? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> All right. I got it then. Fantastic. Matthew, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, really catching up with you, learning about this case and uh, learning about the work you're doing at the justice. You can call it the justice for animals. I like to think of it as the Animal Justice Institute. It's just, that's what it <laughs> feels like to me. It feels right to me. Now, I, I think it's wonderful. I uh, hope one of these days that we'll be uh, freed from all the restrictions and I can come down in person and see the great work that you're doing. That would be fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Heroes and Zeros. All right, everybody. Peter, are you ready for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros? Got goosebumps, Camille. I am ready. I am ready for Heroes and Zeros. Well, what a zero we have today. What a zero, Peter, I got to say. <laughs> My old friends. Uh... Yeah, our old friends. So the zero this week, this episode, goes to NFAC, National Firm Animal Care Council. NFAC, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast, we like to complain about NFAC. NFAC is a essentially a self-regulatory industry-dominated body that makes recommendations for how animals should be treated by the industry. These recommendations have no legal effect. They're not legally binding. Um, it's, you know, essentially a huge problem. We view it as industry humane washing. But here's some information about what NFAC is up to. So NFAC creates these codes, and the codes are supposed to represent our understanding of how firmed animals should be treated. They're produced by industry, scientists, government, a couple animal welfare reps, uh, but industry really controls the show. So the codes are revised and reissued every 10 years, but every five years between the revisions, they do kind of a review. And sometimes they'll recommend changing things or, you know, making minor amendments. So the pig code was last reviewed, Peter, in um, 2014. Mm. It was issued in 2014, I should say. Mm. And at the time, it made headlines when it came out because there was a commitment into it, in it to transitioning mother pigs and pregnant pigs from sow stalls and gestation crates to group housing where they're not kept in these tiny stalls so small that they can't even turn around. Wow. So there was a phase-out period for uh, a period of 10 years. So it was committed to that by 2024, sow stalls would be no more in the Canadian farming industry. Now... When we say they would be no more, because this is NFAC, there's no requirement, there's no legal effect. People could still have sow stalls if mm. they wanted to, but it was something. Mm. So here we are, five years into the code. We've, we've just gotten into 2020, so it's about five years on. And NFAC is doing its halfway point review of the code. And here's what they're saying. They're now saying that, uh, actually, sorry, but the industry is just not in a position to meet that 2024 commitment. Tough times. Instead, tough times for pigs. Just ask High Life. Tough times, right? Just ask High Life. <laughs> yeah. 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 Instead, what they're saying is they're going to adopt group housing systems by 2029. Mm. So, you know, that's five more years of just horrific suffering. Not that uh, this was a solution to all of the problems facing pigs, but it would have improved their welfare. These these crates are considered some of the worst um, confinement practices in the modern farming industry. Uh, pigs, after they're impregnated, and again, after they give, they give birth, are kept in these crates to basically prevent them from affecting their, their piglets in any way. Uh, they can't turn around. They, they are, you know, essentially confined in a crate the size of their bodies. It's awful. And the industry was given a 10-year time frame for phasing out these crates, and they couldn't even meet that. So to me, Peter, this just, like, blows the lid off this whole process that uh, 
um, some have bought into, and especially the industry has bought into, and they say it's like, you know, all that we've got since there's no regulations. But it's still a terrible process. Like, even when something good happens, these guys aren't going to respect it because it's not law. Well, you know, I've said a lot about NFAC, and I hardly need to repeat myself. My presentation at the uh, conference was on NFAC and some of the concerns I have with it, uh, most notably the way in which, uh, of course, as you point out, it doesn't really constitute law, and uh, also the way in which these committees are uh, constructed and set up and essentially industry-dominated, but they provide the veneer of law and legitimacy. And uh, in fairness, Camille, the reason they provide the veneer of law and legitimacy is because the Canadian government is willing to give it to them. They're willing to offload um, some of their information and and offload uh, some of their, you know, um, um, rulemaking. Responsibility. Can we call it rulemaking or responsibility? Yeah, onto this uh, body and, and pay them to do it. That's my favorite part. Uh, pay, in fact, to do it. And essentially, NFAC is doing a service to the Canadian government. So I can't totally blame NFAC when when the Canadian government has essentially abdicated its role in controlling uh, agricultural standards and handed it over to NFAC. So yeah, I'm deeply troubled by what you say. I think what you're pointing out is is exactly right. And there are real concerns, as always, with delays and ongoing, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to guess, Camille, that the cost of transitioning was just seen as too high to bear. I mean, NFAC is about animals first. I, I, I couldn't imagine, Camille, that the cost of transitioning was what might have prompted this delay. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, sorry. That <laughs> probably was. Um, yeah. So because I, what else does the meat industry care about? Money. I mean, that's all. It's it's a concern. There's no doubt about it, and there's no doubt that uh, we 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 should be concerned and watching everything. In fact, does because honestly, um, they're happy to promote themselves as the view the face of animal welfare in Canada. But when push comes to shove, that doesn't mean as much as it probably should. No, no. And this is not even to get into the other issues with the pig code and the other painful procedures that it still allows at the moment, like tail docking and castration without anesthesia. So lots of problems there. Um, NFAC gets a well-deserved zero. Well-deserved zero. On the hero side of the equation, meine Freunde in Schweiz which means my friends in Switzerland. <laughs> my friends in Switzerland are, as usual, doing some cool things. And I noticed in the story, Camille, is to hold a historic vote on giving monkeys. Well, it's not just monkeys. It's all non-human primates. Switzerland, one of the cantons in Switzerland in particular, I believe it's in Basel, um, is essentially holding a vote on trying to legally extend fundamental rights to life for non-human primates. Pretty big deal. Swiss mm. voters have huge opportunities to engage in direct democracy initiatives where they have a ballot initiative and they all get to vote on it. And if it wins, the government has to do what the voters are looking for. So, you know, we, we don't have that in Canada. and In some states they do in the U.S., which is pretty cool. But uh, Swiss voters have definitely been asked to weigh in on animal issues before. And they usually go in a very positive direction, which is exciting. So from this story, it's not clear to me. I, I don't think when the vote is actually going to take place, but we know that a group called Sentience Politics is uh, working on this initiative pretty heavily and I think behind it to some extent. So really wishing them all kinds of luck. Um, I really hope that Swiss voters are going to take this seriously. I, I suspect they will. I don't think this is 
as controversial an issue as it once was. And I think most people do really care about these issues when presented. And to be clear, what's cool, what's very topical about this, because like this was organized uh, a little while ago, at least over a year, a couple of years ago, I think. But what happened was some of the state governments opposed the vote, um, saying it would violate uh, Swiss federal law. And Switzerland's Supreme Court rejected uh, that position, saying that the uh, the uh, protections were acceptable, if 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 enacted, of course, but there was nothing wrong with the uh, the legality of the uh, of the proposed referendum, and I, I I think that's really exciting. And I just want to point out when we're handing out heroes, Camille, I mean they gathered a hundred thousand signatures to push for this move. I mean I I want to extend my hero to every campaigner on the ground who worked damn hard, I'm sure, to get those signatures, because that is a big number, Camille. Absolutely. And especially in a country of, yeah. of what's the population of Switzerland? It's, it's only co- about 5 million. Yeah, right? it's, it's not. And, and I'm assuming it had to be within that canton. Like, I'm not sure right. you could get people from outside. So 100,000 is like, that's a hell of a number. I, I, I give sentience politics a, a well-deserved hero today. That's fantastic. And best of luck in the referendum. We'll be following that as it goes. No doubt. We'll talk about it on a future episode of Paw and Order. Wow. Well, that brings us. Yes, that brings us to the conclusion of the show, Camille, which is good because I've got to go like work out in my new gym. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, enjoy your COVID workout. And you've got to go put your mask on and hide from all the Torontonians. That's what you have to do, Camille. Go back to BEI. Quick, quick. I just might. <laughs> You'd have to quarantine for two more weeks. All right, everybody. I look forward. Uh, great talking with you, Camille. Great catching up. Look forward to speaking to everybody on the next episode. Okay, until next time. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order.